Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited to have today's guest in no small part because this has been one of the most epic scheduling ass aches that we I've had in a long time. I cannot remember the original reason why I wanted to have today's guest on. It was something in the news or something he wrote that, oh, let's talk about that. And then 6,000 years later, um, we're, we're here and we have him. Uh, yeah, just a quick editor's note. Uh, we're recording this about a week in advance. And because we knew we were going to be doing that, we wanted to avoid any um anything too timely or relevant <laughs> that's right well anything anything pegged to the news we couldn't do rank punditry so it said we decided to do rank wonkery and you are one of uh my colleagues at the american enterprise institute um and um a and i say this in the most loving way possible um a wonk of the first order um my guest today in case i haven't gotten to that part yet is brent orell um he's a senior fellow at AI. He's had a bunch of positions in Congress, in the executive branch. He did all sorts of interesting things. He uh, his, fo- his research these days focuses on expanding opportunity for all Americans, and it's all about uh, getting people back into the workforce, re-entering the workforce, how to find meaning and dignity at work. Um, and he even hosts uh, a rival podcast called Hardly Working. Uh, Brent, welcome to the, the Remnant. Well, thanks, Jonah. I can't tell you how much fun it is to finally be on one of your podcasts since I listened to all of them. Uh, and there we'll are, get you the best doctors. And, yeah, and the, the and there are a lot of them between uh, uh, Glop and Remnant and the Dispatch. I mean, you're everywhere. So thanks for having me. I, 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 technically, I am not everywhere. It's just that you are in the you swim in the very small pond that I happen to frequent. Um, sort of like when Richard Nixon was asked if he believed in overpopulation, believed that the population bomb was a problem. And he said, yeah, of course. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe it's because you're president of the United States. Um, so uh, I, I don't mean this in a, in a snarky way, but to paraphrase uh, the movie Office Space, what would you say you do here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a good, it's a really good question. Uh, you know, uh, Ryan Streeter, our director of domestic policy, he and I worked together in the uh, Bush administration uh, on this on this project called the Faith Based and Community Initiative. And um, after he came to AEI, uh, he called me up one day and said, "I kind of need somebody who can kind of work on workforce development." And since I could kind of do that, uh, I I took him up on it because I had admired AEI um, uh, as a wonk um, for the decades that I've been working in public policy in D.C. And so I I came in. He needed somebody to do workforce development. I had been in the administration, the Bush administration, working at the U.S. Department of Labor and the Employment Training Administration. And let me tell you, that's a uh, a fairly small, let's talk about a small pond. That's a really small pond among conservatives to have much experience in kind of thinking about employment and workforce development. So it's just been great to be here and to, um, you know, really get a chance to kind of talk about all the stuff that I've learned over the last 30 years. I remember when my friend, I'm sure you know him, Tevi Troy, um, was at the labor department, I guess in the first Bush term. And he was, he was my immediate predecessor in the faith, in the faith-based office. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'd asked him, you know, how's it going? And he said this, he said that, and he said, and we've, we've reduced the number of new regulations or new directives to something like 8,000 a month or something like that. I was like, this is a huge conservative victory. (laughs) Yes. We were on top of a mountain. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, um, you write a lot about, uh, the state of work and, um, in part about, uh, you know, people who have dropped out of the workforce. So why don't you just give, give us for the layman who uh, maybe not doesn't know all of the terms. I, I won't do what John Podoritz does on his podcast and ask you to like explain who George W. Bush was. Uh, but um, I will maybe stop you if you get yes. too terminologically too, too, complex. Too little, too many acronyms, too much wonk. You just stop me. What does, what does work look like in America right now? Uh, I think it's kind of the best of times, worst of times uh, in the American workforce. Um, obviously, uh, from an opportunity standpoint for workers, uh, we've got about 2.1 uh, jobs for every worker who says that they would like to have one. Uh, and that means a, a target-rich environment uh, for anybody who's trying to get into the workforce. Uh, so that's, uh, and that, and that's helping to drive, you know, wages and, you know, competition for workers. And that's always good from the workers standpoint, because you're, you know, you're seeing your checks get bigger and, and there's plenty of other uh, jobs to go after if you're not happy with one you've got. So that, that's the good side. The, the, the bad side is the inverse. Uh, we don't have enough people, period. Uh, and um, that's, a little bit related to the pandemic, but really it's the underlying challenge of the demographic squeeze that we're in. Um, we're not having as many kids uh, as Jonathan Last and others have written about. You know, what do you expect when no one's expecting? Well, one of the things you can expect is that there's a pretty severe labor shortage that isn't going away. Um, we are about 850,000 workers below where we were before the pandemic. Uh, and, and then 
looking at where we need to be based on population growth and economic growth, uh, we're about 3 million workers short. And that that's not turning around. Uh, and so we've got to figure out what kind of combination of policies uh, we are going to need in order to uh, close that gap. And um, some of them are, are pretty difficult uh, policies to get through right now. So I mean, it, it, one thing that's sort of interesting to me about you know the stuff you've written, including for the dispatch, which you should be adding to your AI bio, by the way, just note to your RA. I, I always had this very mixed feeling about homo economicus, because on the one hand, who's the first guy, who's the guy who coined it? Um, anyway, it was, it was coined as an, sort of a derogatory term about another, about a philosopher's, maybe it was Ricardo? Jeez, I'm gonna, I'll Google yeah, in a second. Yeah. But, um, and the problem is homo economicus is an entirely valid way of modeling economic behavior, but no one ever claimed that it was a way to model the full spectrum of human behavior. And people have all sorts of other motivations, desires, ambitions, um, needs that don't strictly fall into um, a paycheck. And it was interesting, you wrote this piece for us where you, you pointed out that dissatisfaction about pay doesn't even crack the top five reasons for why workers leave their jobs. So what are the five reasons? I mean, you don't have to give me the perfect list, but like, well, I mean, why, why is that so? You've, you've pointed to it. Typically, when somebody gets fed up and leaves a job, uh, money's, you know, it's there. It's, it's a factor. It's like, well, I can do a little bit better over here um, than, I, than I can in my current job. But that's not usually the main reason. Usually the main reason is something to do with work culture. Uh, and you've, you've nailed it exactly. We have our understanding of work kind of upside down, which is that, uh, work is first and foremost about money. Um, and people like Adam Smith and others who wrote, you know, on this said, you know, markets are really just a manifestation of the, of a, the broader category of who we are as human beings, uh, innately social. Uh, the market is really about people um, exchanging with one another, their labor or their product that they're making. Uh, and we do that out of our, you know, who we are as people. The, and we're the only species that does that. Um, you, you know, dogs don't exchange bones with one another. Maybe yours do, I don't know. They're, they're pretty exceptional dogs. Uh, so, uh, that's, that's the perspective I think that's really missing. And it's, uh, in terms of what is it that people are doing when they walk into the doors of the businesses that they work in? Well, they are making a living, but it's an expression of how much, um, they need to be interacting with other people as well. And, uh, you know, uh, for a business owner, oftentimes, um, you know, every, uh, every, the solution to every problem is wages. And they think, well, if I just raise wages, I'm, I'm going to be able to keep people and wages are useful and helpful, but they, the, the satisfaction we derive from them wears off pretty fast. We need another reason, um, to stay engaged in, in work. And that, is more about meaning and purpose and relationship with other people uh, than it is about uh, dollars and cents. 
But I mean, I mean, you write about the sort of the cliche of the office pizza party and all of that kind of thing. I got, I remember in the '90s when I was a television producer, I worked at this little startup production company, and we would get these promotional materials from workplace coaches. You know, these kind of motivational speakers, seminar people would come in and make everybody, make everybody excited. And one of the examples that they proposed in one of these things, we never hired them, was that bosses should declare wacky sock day once a month. And it became this running joke in our office. Anytime we had a really bad, bad day, it was like, oh man, I could really go for some wacky socks right now. Um, like what, what isn't kitschy and stupid that you can do uh, as, a, as a systemic thing to provide some of these things that you're talking about? Yeah. So, you know, uh, the way I think about this is three stages, you know, it, people need to have their, um, their humanness, their, their personhood recognized, uh, that when they walk through the door, they are multidimensional. They've got all sorts of conflicting and multiple pressures on them and things that they're doing and things that they're concerned about. And so that idea needs to be brought forward in the minds of employers. Like these are human beings. They're kind of ends in themselves. They're not means to other ends. Uh, they have, their own telos, their own, you know, meaning and purpose and, and what they're, what they want out of their lives. And employers have to express a little bit of interest in that. I think, uh, those, those kinds of issues on the job, you know, the uh, interesting and kind of ridiculous example of this was a story that ran in the post a few weeks back about this. Um, so I believe they're in North Dakota. Uh, it's a, you know, a, a fracking operation up there. And uh, what the employer did was he sort of uh, went and ta- they, they surveyed their employees to find out, okay, what is your individual language of appreciation or what in other contexts we call the love language? What's your language of appreciation? For some people, it's recognition. For other people, it's, uh, you know, compliments or affirmation. You know, there's all, people all have their own thing that is meaningful to them in terms of the social side of work. Uh, and, and what they did was they, they put stickers on everybody's helmets. So they couldn't, it's like Indian poker, you know, you you can't Mm -hmm. see it, but everybody else can see it. And so that people knew what sort of, uh, interaction was going to be meaningful to you. Uh, and it it had this enormous effect on morale, you know, Hmm. People were being regularly reinforced in a way that was meaningful to them, uh, and so those. So, like, just, what would the sticker on their head say? Oh, exactly? yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember what some of the other examples were, but you know, like words of affirmation. Uh, uh, I'm going to stumble here, and I can't remember what the other examples were. But you know, what is it in, in gift giving? You know, like some sort of token uh, mm-hmm. of appreciation. And and this worked on roughnecks. Uh, this worked on roughnecks, camp? right? You know, and 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 it's it's like a, a counselor friend of mine said to me one time. It's really uh, it's really impossible to compliment people too much. You can really go over the top with people, and they'll at first they'll like, oh, stop, you know, and then it's like, you know, more, give me more <laughs> of that. Um, and and so I think that a lot of this is just you know being um, kind of emotionally attuned the fact that you're dealing with other people uh, and that they have their own motivations 
you need to understand what those are and engage them. So I think that's it. I mean, that's a low cost, no cost thing, except that it forces you to think differently about the people that you're interacting with. Uh, and so I, I, I think that there are, there are lots of very simple things that are a lot actually cheaper and more meaningful than pizza parties mm-hmm. or giving people pink uh, Himalayan salt or any of the other gimmicks that employers try to sort of like express gratitude to their employees. Um, that stuff feels like manipulation. And it is. I mean, it's an effort to get you to stop thinking about your job for a minute and uh, and take a mental break from it. But what people want is something else, um, which is, you know, to be recognized as uh, for their contributions to the work. Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic to this in the sort of, you know, uh, Arthur Brooks brought me a long way around to the concept of like earned success and this notion of that what people need on a very fundamental level is the is the sense that they they're needed that they're that they belong that that if they were gone tomorrow they would be missed not just because you know they could tell a joke but because they made a contribution mm-hmm. right and and he tell he would tell wonderful stories about you know guys who got out of prison and you know got work as janitors and he tells this one story about some guy who had some very you know uh, I don't mean in the pejorative sense, but menial job, you know, it was like a janitor or a t- toxic cleanup guy or whatever. And it was his first real paycheck after getting out of prison. And he got a, got a text from his boss saying, there's this huge mess. We need you. And he showed it to people and he was like, this is great. Somebody needs me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a very moving kind of powerful thing when you think about it for people who haven't had that and don't have other sources of that in their lives. So I, I understand that, but the curmudgeon side of me <laughs> kind of comes out in some of this stuff. Yeah. And like, I mean, put I think we put it this way because I'm really not trying to be dispar- disparaging about any of this because I think it's important and interesting. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that we didn't have the family breakdown, social breakdown, uh, rampant individualism, the bowling alone phenomenon, the 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 emptying of the churches. Let's say we didn't have any of those sort of social pathologies going on. Would this be as necessary at work? Is this people going to work trying to get stuff that they couldn't more properly get or or properly more traditionally get at home or from friends and family in their bowling league in their church, but now they don't have those sources of meaning and belonging. So they look for it on the job. Yeah. Well, I mean, what else do you do uh, eight hours a day, eight to 10 hours a day? Uh, in a concentrated way. I mean, that's an awful lot of your life to leave uh, on the sideboard and say that uh, that kind of meaningful social interaction is, you know, somehow unimportant, Um, especially given what I talked about at the beginning. I mean, work is a social activity. It arises out of the same instinct that every other kind of personal engagement um, arises out of. You know, we can't avoid the social... um, dimension of work uh, and we can do it well or we can do it badly um, it, you know on the other hand what you say is absolutely true we just got some survey data back that we're going to be you know writing and talking about uh, Dan Cox and I at the survey center um, where people who are happy at work generally have very rich 
uh, or comparatively rich social lives outside of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the people who express the highest satisfaction um, with their jobs are frequently the people who have the highest satisfaction across the board. And if you're not satisfied in your job, work cannot overcome all those other deficits, right? That's, it's, you know, it's not therapy. Uh, work is, you know, and businesses are not social workers, um, but workers are nonetheless social and have to be regarded as such. So what I would say is you're right, you know, that um, it, to some degree, you know, work can't and shouldn't try to make up for all of those deficits. Uh, but it is nonetheless an inherently and innately social activity that, and it has to be understood that way. And I guess, I mean, I mean, the, the, the check on the touchy feely part of this is that these are approaches that employers should do to hold on to people who are good at their jobs, right? I mean, if, 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 if they're not productive workers, if they're just bad workers coming in and trying to like, you know, buck up camper, um, we all love you is limited utility, right? I mean, it's, it's okay. So, I mean, I would frame this a little bit differently. I mean, I, I think that from a dignity standpoint, you know, there's, there are a few things more central, um, to our lives than, than what we do with our, with our minds and our hands in our work. Uh, and that kind, that aspect of our humanity is extremely important. And it needs to be important, again, not just as a means to get something else, but as an end in itself, you know, that, that we are going to be a better society if we think about work more as more than just paychecks, um, that it, it fulfills, uh, it, it helps to fulfill, I should say, it, it, just a very important part of who we are as human beings. Why would we ignore that? We care, uh, you know, we care about human dignity in all contexts uh, and not just uh, in our church or at home or in our community organizations or whatever the other thing is that we do when we interact with other people. Uh, It needs to be um, part of the way that we think about our work if it's going to be reflective of our humanity. Uh, and that's just an extremely important principle. I don't think you could look at American society and say, you know, art, uh, we don't have a problem with recognizing one another's humanity. I think we've got a huge problem with recognizing one another's humanity. And to the extent that the market is, is, is bent away from uh, recognition of humanity, I, it's not helping. Um, it's reducing people to something less than human. Okay, so uh, first a caveat. I, I'm I'm largely sold on this in theory, although I will not and do not think it is applicable to my research assistant guy. <laughs> um, uh, but more broadly, well, I wouldn't apply it to guy either. So we're, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. Um, res ipsa loquitur. So, but um, uh, that said, um, let's say I, I buy it completely. I, I certainly buy the idea that the best managers foster this mm-hmm. esprit de corps, the sense of a team. We're all mm-hmm. making meaningful contributions and everyone is making, you know, we're only as strong as the weakest link. All of those cliches, all of those, you know, football coach, you know, uh, uh, type, you know, management things have 
serious grains of truth to them and not just grains, but large amounts of truth to them. And I'm totally sold on that. We both work at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. Where does public policy come into this? I mean, what what is, what is the regulation, regulatory or legislative role to make people feel more dignified at work? You know, I, I yesterday, I, I, this paper that I wrote on this topic called Dignity at Work, if anybody wants to go read that, uh, and came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, has probably gotten more attention than anything else I've written. Um, while I've been at AEI, uh, it, and, and it has attracted attention from like across the ideological perspective. I've had, uh, sort of center left institutions, uh, reach out to me and say, can you come and talk to our board about this? Uh, I have had libertarians coming up to me and saying, we really need to talk more about this and businesses need a different way of thinking about their human be- the human beings that work for them. Um, so clearly it's, it's hit some sort of a nerve, uh, more than I was anticipating actually. Uh, and I think that's because, um, you know, the, the general deficit that we have in society in terms of our, you know, connection to one another and people saying, yeah, this is also a problem at work uh, is, is a big part of it. You're right about like what do we do from a public policy standpoint? I'm not sure. There are a couple things that I can think of that I think need to be done to help reorient, um, like the tax code as it relates to uh, uh, investments in human development. All right. So right now, if I'm a if I'm a company that buys a new item of non-human capital, whether that's a software program or a, uh, a a new turbine for the plant, doesn't matter. I get a huge write-off for that, right? I think it's 100%, you know, the, the depreciation, deductibility, mm-hmm. and these expenses. Human capital doesn't get treated that way in the tax code. There's a large disparity, which drives, uh, you know, it, it, it drives, uh, it, it, it's a way of subsidizing, uh, the non-human aspect of work. It's going to be a huge problem, especially as AI kind of filters into the system where, you know, the whole, all the motivation, all the market forces are going to be toward how do we get rid of the people and substitute technology for them? That's an area in which I think there could be some equalization. I'm not saying mm-hmm. raise the rates on, on uh, uh, you know, or reduce the the benefit that people get, the businesses get from investing in tangible capital, but it shouldn't be more. In fact, in 1986, last time we really reformed the tax code, it was equal, and over the years it has shifted um, toward that. So that's sort of one public policy angle. But I think you're right. I mean, I think that. Uh, uh, you know, the, the way that the market forces work here, it's not, it's, so you've got the tax thing going on, but then you've got publicly traded companies that get punished mm-hmm. <laughs> if they don't maximize, absolutely maximize profit. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of profit. I think it's really, really important. I think it's, uh, it's another word for opportunity for people to, um, to earn and to learn and to grow and to, you know, 
really take advantage of what America, the American economy has to offer. So I'm not down on profit at all. But uh, all of the incentives are pointed in one direction right now. And I think they need to be balanced. So I like the tax code point. I think that's a very good point. I'm a little more nervous about the, the when you talk about the publicly traded companies, you know. Big, uh, yeah, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on that. I just know that from working in, I, I actually worked in the private sector. I worked for a publicly <laughs> traded company at one point. All of the energy is focused on those quarterly reports because you're going to get punished by the market if you aren't maximizing profit. And that means that everything is lean, 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 lean. And that is one of the things that I think uh, this that excessive focus on lean operation makes it hard on workers um, uh, and and reduces the flexibility that employers have for dealing with kind of the the human aspects of work. Right. But I mean, I, I thought part of the argument for implementing this sort of approach is that worker retention is a huge problem mm-hmm. for companies. And if, if wages aren't in the top five reasons why people quit their jobs, it's these other things, these job satisfaction, all the rest stuff. Seems to me like there's no inherent conflict between long-term profitability and um doing some of this stuff because l- losing workers costs you money worker retention saves yeah, you money yeah, exactly. and, and if and if wages aren't the primary reason to, that you get to keep workers you would think some evil mr burns you know monty burns type uh mustache twirlers would say by all means let us have more team building exercises and fewer raises right <laughs> Yeah, you would think. Why? And I guess the question is, why doesn't it happen? Why do we spend seven hundred, almost seven hundred billion dollars a year on the costs associated with worker turnover, and only about one hundred and sixty billion dollars a year uh, on incumbent worker development? Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. It seems to me that there is a much better bargain to be struck here. And I, and I, and I also just would add to all of this. It's just like. And I, I talk about this in the in the paper. It's like, yeah, there are costs associated with this. There are benefits associated with it. It isn't something actually that we should be trying to regulate. Um, it, this is something that I think employers are coming to on their own because they they don't like all of this churn, uh, and so they want a different they they want a different they want to slow that down. They want to figure out how to do that. They've pushed wages, I think, as far as they can. So what else is there? And this is this is the other stuff, and this is actually the stuff at the top of the list when you when uh, when workers go through what's wrong with their toxic work environment and their unre- and the unreasonable expectations they feel like they're uh, under and the and and pressure and lack of flexibility in their jobs. Uh, you know, these are the other things that you can work on. Now, it's, there are going to be times in any business where the exigencies of business operations have to come first. They mm. have to. And that, it's probably more than half the time that that needs to happen. But it isn't every single moment of every single day. And, and, and employers need to be more thoughtful, I think, 
about how they're addressing uh, the other kinds of pressures within their business. It's not just what the market's going to do them. It's what their labor force is going to do to them. All of that, that $600 billion is falling off the bottom line. Um, you know, that's, those are all, those are all expenses that businesses incur, but I think it is, those are, those are slow burns. You know, it's like it, it doesn't all happen at once. Uh, whereas, uh, when I was again in the private sector, it was like, how many, how many uh, non-billable hours do you have Mm -hmm. that you aren't, uh, that we aren't profiting from? becomes this overhang of anxiety for managers at every level and for workers at every level. And so we've got to figure out how to rebalance this. And I think there's space in there to do it. I mean, obviously, this is the most I've thought about these issues in my entire life. But um, uh, that's probably not fair. But um, listening to you, it kind of makes me think, Joseph Schumpeter had these arguments about the the ruthlessly efficient nature of capitalism and corporations. And obviously there's a big point there. You're, you're pointing out one aspect of it, but I think that one of the things people forget is that any large gathering of human beings that is committed to a purpose or an institution is going to have its own culture as well. Yeah. And so you can often get cultural lag, right? And so the, the things that come to mind are like one, for I don't know where it stands now, but for generations, decades, the the um, when you were uh, an intern and um, you know when you're out of medical school and you're doing your residency kind of thing, the rules were you had to do these three um, sleep, you know, these three all nighters in a row, and because that's the way we did it when we were young, and it's part of the, like it's sort of almost like the hazing ritual right. of the medical profession. Right. And then they start doing all these studies, and it turns out yeah. this is really stupid. Yeah, right? it's really and, bad. I mean, it, yeah. it endangers patients actually. So yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's it, it, when you think when you do, when you take a step back and you just describe it objectively, it's ridiculous. The other thing I kept thinking about is there was a great, I think it was This American Life uh, podcast I heard years ago about Rick Barry, the an NBA player who who shot underhanded, and there is I, I'm going to butcher the story, but the the gist of it was that this is the better way to shoot free throws. It's If you look at the mechanics of the human body, the amount of control you have over the ball, um, it makes more sense. It reduces risk of missing the shot. You know, all these, all these it complicated It just doesn't reasons. look very cool, does it? But it looks lame, <laughs> right? And so, like, Rick Barry was doing it, and then, but then, and, and I, I guess I think Wilt Chamberlain did it for a little while, and then he just got made fun of too much. So he switched back to the, the, the normal way of doing it. And I love these kinds of stories about cultural hiccups. You know, there was a, I remember in the 90s, there was a big argument about um, the QWERTY keyboard, you know, the, the standard yeah. keyboard mm-hmm. on a computer. Mm-hmm. A typewriter is the top line begins Q-W-E-R-T-Y. People call it the QWERTY keyboard. And there was this huge argument among the dork kind of people I hung out with um, about whether or not this proved um, that capitalism was often inefficient because you developed path dependence and it didn't necessarily sanctify the best way. It, it simply sanctified the most successful way in a particular moment. And then it gets, it gets institutional instantiated or institutionalized in ways that 
are too expensive to rip out. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this argument, you know, that, that QWERTY is actually a dumb way to do a keyboard because it was designed that way to slow down typers because the old typewriters would jam if you type too quickly. And so the arrangement was actually intended to be confusing and there's a much more rational way to do it. And like the Hayekian response to that is that may be true, yeah. <laughs> but there's this sort of the, the, you know, what lawyers call reliance interest. It would, it would blow up my life if I had to relearn how to type mm-hmm. because this is just the system that I've acculturated. No, no to. matter how much theoretically more efficient, uh, some right. other method is, right? That's right. If you took a baby and you raised them on this other, you know, the, the, you know, the, maybe Betamax is better than VHS. You know, you raise them on the right technology, it would be better in the long run, but the costs of the transition for everybody else are just so great, it's not worth it. And I, I'm not saying that's the case with this stuff, but it, it, it sort of comes to mind that there's a lot of cultural lag the way, uh, yeah. you know, you have 30 years of management who moved up the ranks thinking in one terms, you have investors who, who demand certain metrics, and reinventing that is, is hard. Terrible. No, I, I think it's a really great point, which is why I think, you know, efforts to legislate on this, for instance, let's let's just mandate a four-day week or let's, uh, you know, businesses are, are organic entities. They arise out of individual initiative and they grow and they change and they morph. Uh, and... Uh, and to me, that's really exciting and powerful and moving, and we need to be very, very respectful of it, which is why I think the the right way to do this is actually to put the ideas out there in front of people and ask them to respond. They, they know that they are struggling. Business owners know that they're struggling with this. They know that this is, it's hurting their productivity. They know that they really ought to be doing better. Some of them take that, you know, have the resources. Typically, bigger companies have a lot more resources to try to do something about it. Uh, sometimes those are just, they're just using kind of, I think, the wrong methods of the, the pizza party. Like Goldman Sachs had this, you know, trying to get everybody back into the office. So uh, Jamie Dimon had everybody, uh, uh, had every food truck in Manhattan come to the, you know, to the, three block area so that everybody could go and have, get their free food. It's just, you know, that's like bait, right? That That's not, that's not addressing the, the concerns of the people that work at Goldman Sachs who don't want to come back to the office and they can do just fine working at home. And he doesn't want that. So he, you know, like there's this push and pull that's going on, which I think is the right way for, businesses and the economy to adjust is to pay attention to what the problems are and to be creative about how to address them rather than trying to, to turn this into a policy issue. Uh, I, it, the economy is too large. It's too diverse. Uh, the cultures of individual businesses are what they are, and they're going to change slowly over time. And that's how we need to think about it. What I'm trying to do is just to pull this idea of the social nature of work out of the back of people's minds and try to get it to the front where they're thinking about this in the context of all the other pressures and tensions that they face in turning a profit Um, and not say we don't have to pay attention to that because 
we do have to pay attention to it for a whole bunch of reasons, including profitability. You mentioned AI earlier. Um, you know, we have we have you know uh, cornucopian optimists like our colleague Jim Pethokoukis, who thinks AI can't get here fast enough. Um, and then you have, um, I don't want to say me, but I, I'm more nervous about the AI dislocations. Um, I certainly think, you know, um, one of the things I think one of the, the chief failures of the sort of progressive mindset in terms of public policy is, is impatience and, um, that, there are lots of good reforms. There are lots of good developments, uh, you know, that come organically out of the market that need to come on slowly. Uh, because if they come on fast, the dislocations aren't worth the benefits. And so, for example, just as a thought experiment, if tomorrow you could replace every one of the truck drivers in America with robots, it would be a huge boom in productivity. It would also be the source of massive social upheaval and ruin a lot of lives, f at least in the short term. Right. And, um, and so like rolling out AI is, first of all, I think it's probably inevitable, right. And we're not going to have, I mean, I, I, I'm a big Dune fan and I love the Butlerian Jihad again and the ban on thinking machines, but we're not there. Um, and so where do you, where are you on your level of concern about, what this is going to do to the the economy? Uh, I I think that I started out uh, on this topic four years ago a lot more worried than I am now. Uh, you know, uh, the, I, I think it was a piece that I you know published in I can't remember where I published. You know, the robots are coming, but they're actually friendly and helpful. You know, they if this is done right it can lead to a productivity boom that will benefit everybody. The problem, and it relates to this other topic that we were on, the problem is that in a, in a corporate culture in which the bottom line is the thing that drives everybody's anxiety, um, you can get a short-term boost out of reducing headcount, um, with artificial intelligence. A lot of businesses are going to be able to do that, but that's not where the productivity increases come from. Productivity increases come when you figure out how to marry human labor with technology. That's been the pattern throughout history. Uh, Eric uh, Bryn Holfson, I can never get his name right, at Stanford has written a really interesting paper on this um, called the, the Turning Trap instead of the Turning Test um, about you know, is it sentient or not? Our pursuit of sentience, he argues, is driving us toward a kind of bad AI that is going to be focused on just eliminating the need for human labor when if we had a different regulatory and tax structure around this, we'd get more of the complementarity that we need uh, between, uh, between AI and human labor. And again, that's where all the productivity increases have traditionally come from. It isn't just eliminate human labor. It's like, how do we get you, talented human being, able to do more of what you're best equipped to do? 
increase your comparative advantage um, uh, in the workforce. So I, I think it... So what, th- just as a, yeah. in a concrete way, what, what does good AI, complementary AI, human productivity maximizing well, AI I mean, look we're, like? We're, we're in a good spot with the labor shortages to kind of find out. And there's been some very interesting stuff being done um, with like helping small businesses or small medium-sized businesses that have been locked out of automation because of the, the costs associated with it. Some new models, business models for how do you introduce AI uh, into um, into these small and mid-sized firms where all the employment actually is. And what it does, uh, what they're what they're seeing robotics and artificial intelligence doing in these settings is uh, allowing them to spread their labor force. We're in a shortage situation, spread that labor force more thinly and supplement with uh, with artificial intelligence and automation that increases the productivity of the firms. Right. You're not eliminating jobs. What you're doing is I can't fill these jobs, so I'm going to figure out how to marry my existing workforce to the technology and and allow them to do more of what they're already good at. That that actually is an encouragement to me. Like this is this principle in 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 action of um, not thinking about well, I'm a grocery store operator, so I'm just going to eliminate cashier jobs and I'm going to substitute self checkout. And then uh, what that will do over the long term is build more demand for uh, computer operators. So you get that idea, uh, or IT specialists, so you get that idea, well, creative destruction creates jobs, uh, but it's creating jobs for which the current labor force has no pathway uh, to get to. So that's bad AI. Good AI, good automation, I think, is the automation in which employers say, how do I get more out of my human workforce uh, by complementing what they're already doing with technology? I mean, short of AI that you can have a conversation with or play chess with or, Mm -hmm. you know, know, debate philosophy with, it's a little bit of a misnomer, right? Because we've had, you know, all, all AI is, all technology is, is embedded human knowledge in physical in physical form right in a certain way and so a car is it's it, it we may not call it ai but it is still taking the inputs of human intelligence and knowledge and and applications and and making it into a physical thing and that's it's hard for me to see how ai doesn't end up in the aggregate replacing human beings i mean uh, would get into a lot of these arguments with people about how we're losing our manufacturing base in this country and <laughs> lost, <we're>, lost. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but like it's, but we actually are managed, no, our manufacturing, our industrial yeah. output has not gone down. Right. It's just that no, we're, people, we're making more stuff with fewer people. Yeah. Right. And so, and the people, and so I think the people who still work in factories are really smart, engaged people who aren't doing the sort of Lucy yeah. at the chocolate factory kind of work. They're really doing meaningful, engaged, serious work where they're leveraging human mm-hmm. intelligence and robotics and all of that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But it's also just, just simply true that there's just fewer people working in factories. And yeah. it's hard for me to see how over the long haul, if AI starts replacing various human functions, that you wouldn't have fewer people working in those areas. 
the I mean the econ school argument to this has always been that uh, that you you increase productivity and raise aggregate aggregate demand and you you generate more jobs on the back end. Right. Um, so that's that's the you know that's what Jim and and Mike Strain and others would argue, and I think that there's uh, you know there's a lot of there obviously that is economic history. Mm-hmm. Um, that as we become richer, we find we we generate more demand and more need for people to produce stuff and serve stuff and uh, and and categories that we can't imagine. I think that's an extremely powerful uh, argument. I, I I think that this can really, particularly when we're in this demographic squeeze. Um, that we're facing, we're going to need this technology. We don't have enough people, uh, and we certainly don't have enough people with the kinds of skills that that we need. So, it it I have faith that it's going to work out. You know, that's been our that's been the trajectory um, since you know since the beginning of time. Uh, that that things are getting. And you, <laughs> I don't have to tell you this. You wrote mm-hmm. the book on it, but I mean, things are getting better. Right. Uh, there's life is, you know, immeasurably better than it's ever been before in history. This is the best time to be alive. Um, you know, and I think that's going to continue to be the, be the case. That doesn't mean it, that there aren't going to be difficulties in, in the transition, um, as we move, uh, into this, into this future where technology is even more ubiquitous than it is right now. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's AI until I'm using it all the time. And then it's just technology. Um, right. That's uh, sort of my point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to absorb it. We're going to figure it out. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy and there aren't going to be, you know, some pretty hard choices. Yeah. So th- this is sort of my point about time being the crucial ingredient, right? Mm-hmm. Is that I think it is indisputably true that trade benefits everybody. But I also think it's indisputably true that a lot of people, including me, you know, to the extent I had any influence at all when NAFTA was, you know, I, I was a 20-something kid. But people like me who were very pro-NAFTA, very, very pro-free trade, all that, still am very pro-free trade. Mm-hmm. But the people who push free trade were absolutely right on the macro argument, the global, you know, the big picture argument about how this is going to benefit everybody in the long run. What they kind of mumbled or didn't mention is that it will also hurt a bunch of people in the short run. Yeah. And I, I think this is the issue. I mean, I agree with you completely. I'm, you know, I was a free trader. I am a free trader. And I think that in the long haul, everybody's going to be better. Uh, you know, if we leverage, um, comparative advantage and we're going to get more of all the good stuff that we want. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but I think we did an absolutely crap job of preparing ourselves for the impact, not so much of trade, actually. I don't think trade, trade accounts for about 25% of the loss uh, in manufacturing jobs. It's automation that really, you know, went after the routine jobs uh, in the economy that, um, that, that went away. Uh, And, and this goes back to the, the human stuff that we were talking about before, when you ask employers what's missing in the workforce, they'll give you a list of 10 things and eight of them have nothing to do with any kind of technical or hard skill. They're all about communication, 
ability to relate to other people, teamwork, collaboration. You know, it's just like that. It's crazy, you know, that we spend all of our time and effort training people for hard skills when it's these human skills that are most in demand. So we need to be investing in in that even more in a world of high technology, which is it's a conundrum or paradox um, that we're facing. Well, let's stay on this for just two seconds, because I agree that automation is a much bigger deal than people think it is. But it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I have this standard line, I've been using it for 25 years about how um, conservatives in particular, egghead conservatives in particular, love to argue about ideas. And I love arguing about ideas, right? But we then tend to put, because we always put more value on the things that we think are important, we actually make them more important than they are in some mm-hmm. ways. I still think mm-hmm. ideas are hugely mm-hmm. important, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain kind of intellectual story that people on the right tell about how Nietzsche or Sartre or, you know, these ideas that escape some German lab mutate in Paris and then infect America. (laughs) And that's why we have all the problems that we have. Right. And uh, Macron says that they're now reinfecting Paris. Yeah. Which is fair. You know, like take that for Sartre bastard. But, um, (laughs) but my point is, is that that stuff is real and there's an argument to be had for all of that. But at the same time, if you just look at what the automobile did for traditional communities and societies and ways of life in this country, it was way bigger deal. I mean, just way bigger deal, but you can't argue with a Buick. You can argue with Nietzsche. And so we tend to, like the drunk looking for his car keys where the light is good, we look at these things. Similarly, we don't want to talk about automation. We want to talk about trade, which is a small part of it, but a real part of it. And then and then we really want to scapegoat immigration, which, you know, has a relationship to this story, but not necessarily the negative one that people ascribe to it, but it, it triggers a different part of our brains to say, oh, these people have come in and have taken these things from us and they don't look like me and it, it, it gets uglier. Um, where, where do you, where, I want to get to a different topic in a second, but where, where do you come down on immigration in this story? Okay, so I am every day more hard over on the need for as much immigration as we can get. Uh, and that goes for, for high skill immigration, which is in, incredibly important to long-term prospects for the economy, right down to having enough people who uh, we can pay to do the work that we can't get native uh, uh, or uh, <laughs> It's the wrong. I'm gonna say Native Americans. That's not what I mean. Native born. I mean people born citizens. here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to to do. Uh, you know, are, we're getting to the point where you know we're going to be able to harvest the food um, that we're producing. That kind of thing. So I'm just like the immigration argument. I think is corrupt and uh, against immigration is corrupt and self defeating. And I think it hurts everybody. Um, uh, we need more of all kinds of labor. And the reality is that we may not be getting the kind of immigration um, opportunity that we've had in the last 50 years because unemployment in Mexico is as low or lower than it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. And every country is going through this demographic squeeze. They're going to want to hold on to more of their own uh, native 
human capital and rather than exporting it to us. So I think it, I think this argument is really going to uh, turn and uh, swing around on us uh, in the, in the next 10, 20 years where it's like, how many people can we get in um, rather than, you know, we need, we need walls to keep people out. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm directionally with you. Yeah. Um, I think though, as a political problem, Oh yeah. Well, that's leaving the politics aside, but yeah, I mean, the only way you get this country to really go all in for a robust legal immigration program is by dealing with illegal immigration because people feel like they're suckers and that they've been conned and lied to. And to a certain extent they have been. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I was very hopeful. There's all this wonderful new data coming out showing Hispanics moving to the Democratic, moving the to the Republican, Republican Party, Party. Yeah, which at least makes it what can create some space for a more rational conversation, both from Republicans who I mean, I would love to have a list of all the Republicans who said Democrats are importing voters, um, <laughs> and that's why we have to stop immigration. Who are now yeah. all of a sudden speaking yeah. in Spanish and saying, you know, you know, uh, viva. Latinos all over the place, right? Um, because they're voting for them, and that's a good thing, you know. Uh, just changing gears one last time before we run out of time, because um, I have to record Glop after this. Oh, um, I think part of our sus- cultural societal problems in terms of you know transitioning to whatever the new economy is or will be um, has a lot to do with a specific sort of crisis for men. Um, and that a lot of the new jobs that are coming down the pike, I, I don't mean this in anything like a pejorative sense at all, but they're kind of like girl, traditionally girl jobs. Right. And, um, and this is spent- not, this is not actually true. I, I mean, I just have to say, this is not actually true. We have a million, over a million open manufacturing jobs, right? Now. Is that right? Okay. Yes. We have, we can't get enough construction workers. We can't get enough uh, people working in extraction industries. The, the problem here is not the availability of jobs. It's a, it's a work morale, disability, culture issue. Was that true three years ago or five years ago? We've always had gaps, right, in manufacturing employment. It, it's, it's gotten significantly worse, but the jobs are there. Uh, what we need are the people. We need to figure out how to talk to these men, these non-working men who, if you believe what Nick Everstadt says, they're, they're, they're working at anything, any, you know, any kind of work, 45 minutes a day. I mean, women in this country, whether they are in the paid workforce or not, are working constantly, right? Uh, but these out-of-labor-force males are, are sitting and it's terrible for them. It's terrible for the economy. It's terrible for the society. Uh, and um, we've, we've got an opportunity right now where we've got tons of jobs that these men said they wanted uh, that, that need to be taken advantage of. But I mean, that's, that's a heartening point because, I mean, this is a point, you know, my point about the girl jobs thing, it's not, it's not like I imagined it. I mean, I've heard this from a, a lot of people. And you look at the demand for for I mean, when I was talking about girl jobs, I was thinking about things like nurses, home caregivers, that kind of thing. And I, I want to be very clear, having spent a good amount of time in hospitals with uh, loved ones in, in recent years, uh, 
the work they do is amazing. Yeah. And like I, the idea that yeah. it should be denigrated in any way is disgusting to me having seen what they have to do and they do it with a smile often. Um, um, but, uh, they're the, but the, 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 so where do put it this way then? If it's not true that the not true at the moment, let's be fair. Okay. It's not true at the moment. Right. Because yeah. I mean the 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 way I always heard it for the last 10 years, um, including from AI colleagues, I think Charles Murray's made this point. I, I swear Nick has made it and Michael's made it, is that the kinds of jobs that traditionally it used to be in this country that, and this is a gross oversimplification. But if you had a strong back and a and a good work ethic, you could get to the middle class pretty. I don't want to say easily because you needed to you need to work hard, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, the path was fairly straightforward and simple. Let's say that it wasn't necessarily didn't wasn't easy in the sense that it took real work, but the path was clear in front of you. Um, it's. I mean, I'm not unsympathetic to the argument, you know, but those many of those same conservatives, Charles and, and others, you know, back in the 90s when we were when this conversation was really focused on uh, black populations, you know, African-American populations in this country, it was all about culture. Right. It was all about the loss of work ethic that was that was driving black withdrawal and male black withdrawal from the workforce, right? Mm-hmm. That was the argument. Um, and William Julius Wilson uh, and and others looked at this problem and said, look, that's not actually true. This is kind of a structural problem. The jobs left the cities and went to the burbs or they went overseas. Right. It wasn't, you know, it's not a, a lack of willingness to work. You know, they didn't or they left the north and went to the south. Uh, yeah, they, you know, yeah. They, they didn't flee the jobs. The jobs left them. Um, and, and conservatives said, no, 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 that's not true. We've got our data tells a different story. And, uh, you know, it really is a culture problem. All of a sudden when it was white men who stopped showing up for work, it became a culture problem or it became a structure, I'm sorry, a structural problem in the workforce. Oh, well, their jobs went away and you got to understand, you know, there's, you know, and, and then it eroded the culture and all of a sudden we were in this structural argument about, about work. Um, uh, and that seems awfully convenient to me. That seems like special pleading on behalf of, you know, our people as compared to what we did, uh, with blacks. And we also, this also works on, on, on the gender side of this, which is in the mid nineties, we told women who were on welfare that they had to go back to work that five years and out, that was it. Uh, you were not going to be able to get welfare benefits. We have never said that to men. The, and that's because they don't get the, the government benefits. We don't have as much leverage over them, but we do have some leverage. Uh, and, um, and you know, we need to be looking at the disability system to see how it can be reformed so that there's, there's more pressure to stay in the workforce um, for men because that's where they're going. They're getting on disability. They are existing, subsisting on other people's benefits and income. They are getting SNAP benefits. They're not paying their child support. All of these things, we need to take these levers and say, to the extent that we can use them, we're going to use them to create the directional arrows pointing back toward work. Yeah. Now, I, I think that point 
I mean, I, I'm going to think about the special pleading point because uh, let's just put, I'll put a pin on that for another conversation. But the you know one of the proposals, you know, I, I, being of a fairly libertarian sort when it comes to economics, um, uh, my spider sense tingles when we talk about what government can do for a lot of these things, but. Um, and work also rate, just, work rate for women is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I yeah. think that's right. And, and, and my old boss at AEI, Ben Wattenberg was deeply into the welfare reform stuff. And I spent a lot of time, you know, going to school on that. But the, what I was going to say is that, you know, and, you know, also in part, because, I mean, you know, Michael Strain is just a shifty guy. You never really <laughs> trust him, but you know, when he started making these, some of his proposals for what government can do, I found myself remarkably persuaded by a bunch of them. And one of them, you know, for example, is it's, it's not that the jobs don't exist. It's that the people who want the jobs aren't in the places where the jobs are and, um, giving people travel vouchers, you know, which I mean, one-time aid yeah. is much more tolerable yeah. than the dole, the yeah. dependent stuff, yeah. right? And, um, you know, the old Paul Ryan, we want, you know, we wanted the social safety net to be a trampoline, you know, not a web kind of thing. I'm very sympathetic to. Also, the, you know, my friend Ron Bailey did this great piece where he returned to the part of, of Western Virginia. If you say West Virginia, he, he goes crazy. It was a really moving piece and because and, and, he grew up in a very poor part of the state and um and it's gotten poorer it's sort of sort of a what jd vance type stuff he was talking about let's not dwell on jd vance himself you know one of the points that he made is that portability of benefits is a is a huge issue because the people make economic decisions at the margins and if there's a job 500 miles away you might be open to the idea of moving but since you would have to reapply for everything, you know, legitimate benefits, not legitimate, all that kind of stuff, you basically get bureaucratically tied. It's a kind of serfdom, right? You get tied to the land that you're on, and then you're stuck with the opportunities that are in front of you. And if the opportunities only pay you a dollar more an hour than the benefits or pay you a dollar less than the benefits, you can see why people would make some rational decisions not to, to work. I mean, I think they're, they're bad decisions, but you can see the homo economicus thing kicking in. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And if, in fact, I want to, you know, in everything that I said about the the structural versus the uh, cultural arguments around this, I actually believe that they work together. Sure. You know, it's like right. culture and structure are, are always working together. It's organic. Uh, and so it doesn't really pay to say, well, it's all structure. It's all culture. It's both. Uh, so, I mean, you make a really good point. Uh, people whose automobile sh plant shut down in Lordstown, Ohio, who couldn't move because they had a child that required Medicaid uh, services. And if it, they moved to out of state, they were going to have to go through that whole process and they didn't know what the benefits were going to be. So it's just easier to stay where they are. I get that. And I think that is a real thing. And I think that part of the solution to this is that in my perfect world, when you enter the workforce, you automatically begin contributing to a, an IRA type vehicle or a 401k type vehicle that you're putting into, government's putting into, and employers are putting into. So that when you hit that bump, 
and need to move or need to retrain, you've got some resources that are there to do that. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I mean, I really believe that we have to do a better job of, of removing these barriers so that people have more flexibility to address the shift in the economy that's going on around them. And I think this is one, this is a, that would be a good way to do it um, is that we just have to plan. We have to build this flexibility in. We have to plan for the fact that the jobs that exist now are not going to exist in the future or they're going to exist in a different way. And you're going to need to have different skills and you may need to pack up and move. And now you've got the $5,000 in your, uh, in your account that you can use for this, um, for this purpose. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we went wrong really on automation was that, that we didn't plan for the dislocation that was going to happen and plan ahead. We said, if you could prove that you were a trade impacted worker, we were going to give you a whole bunch of benefits and you could retrain or move or whatever you wanted to do, but we didn't really think about automation in the same way. Just in the little time we have left, it's been a while since I followed much of this stuff closely, but um, my understanding was that you tell me if I'm wrong that that the the work on the 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 scholarship on worker retraining showed that it's at best a mixed bag, um, like retraining someone working in a factory till they were 45 or 50 years old to do something else. I mean, telling people, you know, it's sort of like the, the meme on Twitter, learn to code. Um, telling some people learn to code is kind of asinine, you know, at a certain stage in their life. Um, do we have a good grasp of what kind of worker training works? What kind doesn't? We, uh, well, it, funny you should ask. I'm, I'm running a project right now with, uh, some folks at the Harvard Kennedy School and Brookings, uh, uh, where we are asking that question, you know, what does the data on this actually say? And the answer about to the question, what works is not much. Um, there's just not a lot of good evidence, except in one area, something called sector-based training strategies, uh, in which, uh, and a very particular and rigorous form of sector-based training strategies where uh, workers are uh, taken into training programs that are servicing a whole bunch of different companies in the same sector, like IT or healthcare, whatever it is. And uh, they are, they are very intensive uh, training programs and they can, they're quite successful at moving people from the $16,000 a year job to the $60,000 a year job. And that's the kind of thing that we want and almost never see. But there are some programs that have been evaluated that are actually doing this. So that's that's sort of part one of that answer about, uh, uh, about what works. But in an environment where we don't have enough of those programs and they're hard to build and it's not going to be easy to scale them, what else do we need to do? And this is where my libertarian side comes out and says that you, Jonah, or you, you know, whoever have a much better idea of what your interests are, what your skills are, what your opportunities are, and you need, what you mainly need are resources to be able to act on that. 
rather than waiting for a job training program that's going to answer those questions for you. And I think that that's, you know, nothing's perfect. You know, there is no perfect solution to any of this, but people are wicked smart. If they have the opportunity, they will figure out a lot of their own solutions. They just need, I think, to be resourced to do it. Um, and, and they need the ambition to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, your, your point about young they, men, you know, sitting on the couch playing video games. Right. And know? if you don't have the ambition, then the resources don't matter. Right. 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 Uh, you, you have to have the, the drive. And so that's what we need to focus on is not how do we fix everybody in every situation, but how do we equip people who are ready to take on um, responsibility for their own futures? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like, and this is my, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's. It's silly to talk about just structural versus just cultural because structure is a structure drives culture and culture drives structure, and it's very difficult to pull the two apart. But sort of the it seems to me that on the cultural side, part of the answer to all the irresolute slacker young men um, is the way you change that culture is the you you have a galvanic sort of suction that says the people who do want something better start doing it and all of a sudden it becomes less socially acceptable yeah. to not be doing it yep. and yep. stops being cool to stay home and, and play call of duty. I mean, I, I think there is a problem. We're not going to get into video games, but there is a problem with video games, tricking our brains into thinking we had a productive day by achieving another level. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm serious about that. I think that that mimicking uh, huge. is, a, is a, a big problem. problem. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's funny, like my, you know, my wife's from Alaska and she grew up in Alaska when they were building the pipeline. And, um, my father-in-law had a hell of a hard time keeping his older sons from quitting high school and going to work on the pipeline because these are 1980s dollars. You can make 70 grand a year and they'd have friends who, you know, dropped out in 11th grade or after graduation went up there and would come back with their, you know, their Camaros or whatever, and with a lot of money. And, um, you know, my father-in-law kept them in school and sent them to college, but like, that's still, I would much rather have that kind of social pressure where people are tempted to make, I think the wrong decision about their long-term interests, but they're still being attracted to doing real work rather than not doing anything at all. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, I think that, uh, the, the other thing inside that is that you're strengthening the habit of uh, the loca- locating control inside of yourself instead of being told by somebody right. else what to do. And I think there's a lot to that. Uh, I do think there are some challenges. We need to like, you know, encourage people to get the education that they need um, to thrive in the long haul. And that means something beyond high school, um, whether that's college or, or something else but uh it it's it's the the habit the models the examples that you're talking about are extremely powerful and um and they help drive culture uh for for people who might be otherwise inclined to be unmotivated um which is why i always i struggle a little bit with the whole success sequence thing because it's like it's handing people a rule book on this isn't enough. You, you really have to have the models around them to say, that's something I could do. Um, so they are kind of inspired to that rather than 
you know, it, you know, just get your finish high school and don't have kids until you get married. It's, uh, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, so there's a, one last question on this. Um, as a guy named Goldberg, I rarely say we need to emulate Germany more. Um, but I mean, I remember reading pieces in the public interest 30 years ago about how, um, we should emulate their apprenticeship programs. They do a really good job of sending people who are appropriate for college to college and then sending people who are not appropriate to college to technical and vocational schools and all that kind of stuff. It's one of those things that every expert I've ever talked to says, yeah, it's smart. And yet I never hear about how we're getting any closer to that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's great, uh, you know, for connecting young people to work. But what you find is actually their problem is at the other end. They can't keep people uh, in in the jobs. They, you know, as they as they approach middle age, uh, people really stagnate, um, and so they've got that's the German problem. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, we should, which might be related to the welfare yeah, state yeah, issues yeah, and all that yeah. kind of stuff, right? All right, Brent. Uh, obviously, we could go on longer. Um, I'm delighted that we finally got you on yeah. here. And by the way, I was thinking of John Stuart Mill. He's the guy who coined uh, Economic Man. The guy yeah. turned into Homo Economicus yeah. and yada, yada, yeah. yada. So um, but thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so uh, Brent has left the studio. And um, I'm actually recording this after I just finished uh, uh, recording um, the Glop Culture podcast with Rob Long and John Podoritz. Um If you're looking for... Lighter fare, that might be a good place for you to go. Um, if you've never heard um, our podcast, a lot of people like it. It's got a, it's got a kind of a weird big following. And if it wasn't on over at Ricochet, I would argue about moving it over here to the dispatch. Anyway, um, I learned a lot from Brent, and um, I want to circle back on some of the things that we talked about that I haven't made up my mind on. But um, I thought it was. You know, it was interesting and I learned a lot and he's a good guy. And so thank you for listening. Again, your podcast schedule, your podcast diet of remnants should not be interrupted because I've recorded some of these things in advance, but I'm leaving town this Saturday um, to an undisclosed location that I'm very much looking forward to. Um, and, um, but then I come back and then I go away for August, but I'll be, it's a working vacation kind of thing and I'll still be recording podcasts from the road. And uh, other than that, I'll just, um, you know, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.